Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, a podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have around 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is episode 323, and on today's podcast, I talk to Michael Nugent about his book, A Bad Day I Fear, that looks at Irish divisions during the Battle of Lanarmark on the 16th of August 1917. This book is published by Helian and Company. Michael spoke to me from his home in Northern Ireland. Michael, welcome back to the podcast. To begin with, could you introduce yourself and provide a brief overview of your book, A Bad Day I Fear? Uh, what inspired you to explore the events surrounding the Battle of Lanarmark? Um, yeah, well, good to see you again, Tom. Uh, Michael Nugent's my name. I'm a Great War researcher and, and author. Uh, I've been researching the, the Great War for about 10 years, and this is the third book that I've written. Uh, my first book was was on the second in the Skillings at the Battle of Festiver in May 1915. I had a family connection there. And uh, my second book was on the 36th Ulster Division in the German Spring Offensive in, in March 1918. So I think you can say... Um, I'm drawn to events that, that aren't really victories I, 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 or not seen as successes. I, I find that um, accounts that are uh, events that don't go well are, um, they appeal to me as I believe that there's a backstory, there's something to be investigated there. Uh, and, and uh, you know, why did events turn out this way? And this is a, Langemark's a, a classic example because the two Irish divisions, the 16th and, and the 36th, they had enjoyed remarkable success at the Battle of Messines on the 7th of June. And yet, 10 weeks later, they endured a complete disaster. And so why? So that's what spurred me on to, to, um, to start researching it. But in the book, um, you can't just start writing about the battle, so you obviously have to go back and, and look at events and um, came across, I learned a lot from it, some really fascinating stuff, um, particularly the relationship between uh, the Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, and uh, Field Marshal Sir Douglas Haig, the Commander-in-Chief, uh, which went downhill fairly rapidly and, and had a, a deleterious effect on, on preparation for the, the Thirds uh, Offensive. Um, I also examined the, the use the Germans made from the delay after the Battle of Messines uh, to construct a, a near impervious uh, defensive system. Um, I look at the uh, decision to appoint General Hubert Goff um, as an over-General Plumer, who had performed very well and had performed uh, exceptionally well at, at Messines. Um, I look at the weather, because the weather had a, a profound impact on, on how the uh, offensive uh, was played out, basically from, from day one. And in relation to the battle itself, um, I have looked at both divisions. The both divisions fought side by side. We have the, the 16th Irish Division on the on the right uh, of the 19 core frontage and the, the 36th on the left. And I look at each battalion in the front line and how uh, the day unfolded for them. So I can see right across uh, the, 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 two, or the two divisions frontage. Uh, I look at um, casualties, uh, the casualties that the, the divisions uh, suffered. And, and that actually worked very well into how the day played out because, funnily enough, the most fatalities were on the battalions that had the hardest task. You know, no surprise there. Um, I look at the performance of Fifth Army staff and their, their planning for the offensive and, and uh, 
issues that were ongoing within within Fifth Army, uh, which which are very important to to the narrative. So um, I've actually said I found uh, exceptionally interesting, and I learned a lot uh, from from writing about it. I wonder whether we could just sort of step back. What was the Battle of Lanamark, and how does it fit into the Third Eep campaign? In late 1917. So, what was it? What was the battle aiming to achieve um, as part of the 30 campaign? Okay, so the 30 campaign started on the 31st of July, and we had the Battle of, of Pilgrim Ridge. Um, the, the plan was the initial plan was to sweep the Germans off the high ground to the east of Ypres, which is which is known as the Gelleveld Plateau, uh, and sweep round. Seriously ambitious plan: sweep round to the north and west. Uh, to to come to the Belgian coast, and that was to be combined with an amphibious landing, uh, and that was in the planning up for quite some time. Um, and things started to unravel slightly after the Battle of Messines, where uh, they realised that they had they hadn't got the the Germans off the the Gelleville Plateau, and they had to move move forward with the the offensive starting on the ten weeks later or eight weeks later on on the thirty first of July. Uh, and the battle on the 31st of July made some good successes, but the German the German um, defences had been planned meticulously, and they worked exceptionally well. Uh, the, their their plan was to uh, draw the the uh, the forces forward. The lightly held they had a lightly held front line. They had bunkers behind it, uh, manned, and they had constructed thousands of these bunkers in the in the intervening period between. Machines and and uh, the opening of the offensive, they were sucking the the troops in as they got farther forward. They had to deal with all these bunkers, and while they're being held up, the creeping barrage that they had had gone far ahead, so there's no real cover. And the Germans then put in their counterattack or grief uh, divisions, who basically pushed them back to the start point. And that's what happened at the at the at the Battle of Pilgrim Ridge. Uh, initial success was made. But then uh, the, the the troops got bogged down uh, dealing with uh, concrete blockhouses, and uh, when the attack counterattack divisions came, pushed them back, and then we had the weather, which was horrendous, torrential rain. They looked then to uh, have uh, a second attack on the fourth of August, but this was cancelled because the weather was so bad. Uh, they then decided to have uh, a concentrated attack to drive the Germans off Gelville Plateau, and that occurred on the 10th of August. Uh, minimal success. The Royal Irish Rifles, second Royal Irish Rifles, managed to capture Vestok Village. Uh, Inverness Cops and Glencore's Wood were captured, which are on the on the plateau, but the Germans pushed them off. It, it, it's it's indicative of the of the importance that the Germans had in Gelville Plateau, because basically what they had there, this is seriously flat ground, you know, the Gilbert Plateau was not very high at all. Uh, so uh, the German artillery was to the rear of the plateau, so it couldn't be seen. But they had forward artillery observers on the top of the plateau who could see everything that was happening on the lower ground and went over deep. And, uh, you know, they just pounded the the uh, Allies left, right and centre. And um, failure to take the Gilbert Plateau was, was the key. And that, that was... Um, when the attack went in on the 16th, uh, now the Irish divisions were sort of in the centre. The, the attack uh, heading over uh, towards Gelveld was, was to their right. Um, but the Irish divisions were were pushing ahead and fell in the exactly same situation as the troops on the uh, uh, the 31st. And, and, and the troops on the, the 31st, uh, if we look at 19 Corps, 
and and uh, the 16th Irish and 36th Ulster Division had been transferred from Plumer's Second Army to Gough's Fifth Army um, in in um, later on in June, and uh, there's I think there's a sort of a motivational aspect to this because in war diaries and divisional core war diaries it says they'd been specifically asked for. Um, whether it was because of their their performance at Messines, uh, I'm not 100 percent sure, but they they were transferred to uh, 19 Corps. So on the 31st of of July, the 19 Corps attack was led by the 55th West Lancashire Division and the 15th Scottish Division, and they made their advance, got held up, and and got pushed back. Uh, both divisions, and I, I find this remarkable, and actually merged itself with it with the Irish Division, but. Both divisions on the uh, that early part of the thirty first and fourth of thirty first July and fourth of August lost over three and a half thousand men, well dead, wounded, and missing. But the difference between the two divisions is four, <laughs> you know, three you know three thousand four hundred and forty seven to three thousand four hundred and forty three casualties for both those both those divisions in in the in the initial attack, and that is why the Irish divisions had to go and relieve them because they were just exhausted. In the conditions and incapable of of incapable of, of fighting further. Rather long winded answer there, Tom. But <laughs> so, so the Battle of Messines that you um you, you mentioned in June 1917 showcased the success of the 16th Irish and 36 Ulster divisions fighting side by side. However, the Battle of Lanamark, as you pointed out, was an, an unmitigated disaster. My words, you might want to refute that afterwards. Um, can you walk us through the factors that contributed to the massive outcome in these sort of different outcomes of these two battles? Messines being very, very successful and um, Lanamark being a, a, quote, unmitigated disaster. My words, not yours. Yeah, well, the first is, is the delay with, with continuing the offensive. After Messines, Plumer mentioned to Haig that he needed three days to get his artillery into position, uh, to to concentrate on, on trying to push the Germans off Gelva Plateau, because he knew that that was that was exceptionally important. Um, as I mentioned, they they had all you know all their their uh, artillery pieces on their the reverse slope and were able to pound the British. So uh, the other factor is he deciding to go with with um, General Goff, and uh, I haven't found many people who who would regard that as as a a wise decision. Uh, you know, there's a kind of people who say, well, maybe it's the old cavalry things. They're both cavalry officers, Hagen and uh, Goff were cavalry officers. But Goff, Goff was ex- much younger. Uh, at the time of the battle, Plumer was 63, Goff was 47. Goff was the youngest general in the British Army, seen very much as a, a rising star and seen as someone who could get the job done. And I, I think, and I have no evidence to this, but, I, you know, my perception is that, that he possibly thought that Plumer... Uh, had maybe been in uh, the Ypres salient too long. Maybe you know he was a bit ponderous. Uh, he wanted somebody for a quick, uh, a quick attack and a quick success. Bearing in mind that the the whole strategy was to sweep up round to the Belgian the Belgian coast. So he thought, well, you know, Golf is maybe my my man to be able to uh, to do that. Um, the first thing Golf did when he was doing his plans was he requested a delay. So uh, we have. We have a delay starting to be built in, and that crept on. The, the French were obviously in this uh, offence were very much junior partners, and that's because of the the uh, the mutiny in the French army and began sort of April um, nineteen seventeen, following the, the the disastrous Nivelle offensive. But the French were taking a part in it, and they had were providing six divisions for the for the attack, 
um, was not really a lot in the whole scheme of things. But they then requested, Goffers requested a delay. Um, the French requested a, a delay. The Germans, meanwhile, are, are building their their defences um, to get. This is, is is we're getting at this stage of war. We're getting into sort of all arms, um, uh, an all arms offensive. So of the Royal Flying Corps involved, they need to get control of the skies as well. Uh, so it takes them time to get to drive the Germans out of, out of the uh, skies from being able to observe the British preparations. So the uh, um, German or the British uh, air offensive started on the 11th of July. Uh, the preliminary bombardment started on the 16th of July. And between the 16th of July and the 31st of July, they fired, the British artillery fired 4,283,000 shells uh, into what was already low-lying ground with a high water table. So that turned it into a complete quagmire. And the, the effect of that, this negated the, the use of tanks. And I'm actually reading about um, the early tank corps at the minute. Um, and tank corps officers... Uh, were aware of the capabilities of their own tanks. And we have to bear in mind that a Mark IV tank, which was in use at that time, weighed 28 tons. Uh, they sent um, maps every day to general headquarters uh, saying, this is the area we can operate in and updating it every time as, as, as the month went on until GHQ told them, don't send us anymore. Uh, so tanks, which were... <laughs> <laughs> integral part of of the uh, the British arsenal could not be used. So if things starting to go wrong, basically, oh, I like that as well because Germans feverishly building um, blockhouses and 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 uh, um, you know and, and myriads of them and, and uh, across the front, uh, and you know the British could see this could see this happening as well. Um, but in my from my research, basically things started to go downhill. Um, with delays, delays being built in and, and uh, sort of tactical issues which, which weren't really addressed, such as the tanks, etc. Well, sorry about that. I was just finding finding the button. So uh-huh. in your in your book, you, you delve into the you know the causes of the failure to exploit the success of the Messines offensive. Why what 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 are the major factors? I think you've elaborated on a couple of these already, that actually, you know, it takes so long, you know, from Messines to the start, maybe you know, nine weeks or so. To get this offensive underway, yeah. Well, the main the main thing is I touched on there a minute ago. It gives the Germans time to build their build their defenses. That's that's key to it. Uh, and they realised that the ground that they were holding, um, you know, it's low lying ground, it's marshy ground. Trench traditional trench warfare wasn't really going to to work. And they knew that the British were going to attack again. They knew that, that, that there would be a, a resumption of the offensive. So they said, well, there's no point in having men in the front line. You know, lines and lines of men in the front line who are going to get decimated by artillery. So, so they they called on on uh, their defensive expert, who, who was only a colonel, uh, Oberst um, Fritz von Losberg, and uh, he was given the op- opportunity construct constructive defensive system, and, and he did it. And let me tell you, uh, the defensive system had a depth of seven miles, and uh, they the plan was to have. Um, uh, like a very lightly held front line, and uh, then the concrete, uh, you know, line of concrete strong points behind that. And they they built. Um, I came across um, information in one of the books. They built nine thousand of these between Messines and the opening of the the third offensive. Nine thousand. That, that that's a major engineering feat. And what they what they did um, was they. Uh, 
farmhouses that existed there, they reinforced them with concrete, and then they had purpose-built concrete blockhouses as well. Uh, it was such it was done such an industrial scale. They were bringing uh, materials on barges through Holland um, to to help construct these, and they used well, they shouldn't have used prisoners, but they they were, and uh, they used Belgian civilians, and they used their own engineers. And the key to this was reinforced concrete. And you know when you when you're on the battlefield today, you know the reinforced concrete's still there. So you know we're talking 106, 106 years later. It's lasted uh, fairly well. One of the, one of the things that uh, the keys in the in the constru- construction specifications with the roof of these bunkers had to be one and a half meters thick. Now <clears throat> the only weapon in the British arsenal was was sort of an eight inch howitzer or above. And they didn't have very many of them. And then because the British had started their uh, artillery bombardment on the 16th of July and fired millions of shells into a, you know, a low-lying area with a high water table, they destroyed the entire watercourse. So basically, it's been described as a sea of mud two miles wide. So a bit of short-sighted thinking here because you're going to have to move your artillery pieces forward. So how the hell even are you going to get them through this mud? So that that was another major, another major issue, which which um, you know bedeviled the the British planning. Um, but the blockhouses were still there; they had to be dealt with individually by the infantry moving forward. You know, they they planned a, a creeping barrage uh, for a hundred yards in four minutes. Well, I have I have accounts of men setting off, and they were waist deep in water and mud. Uh, to move forward to deal with a concrete blockhouse where machine guns are firing at you constantly and you've no cover, and the conc- or the the creeping barrage has disappeared over the horizon, absolutely horrendous. And do and do these bunkers really sort of hold and disrupt the attack in terms of they just they just essentially absorb the the forward momentum and people are either pinned down by them or trying to get around the back of them and destroy them. They do. They do. They work exceptionally well. And and um, when I when I uh, I'm looking at the at the two divisions in the 16th Irish Division front, the Eighth uh, and the Skillings were held up by a bunker, uh, which is a reinforced farmhouse known as Barry Farm. Uh, and unsurprisingly, of the two divisions, they had the most fatalities. Uh, they were mown down basically by. I think I, I've seen uh, that there were five machine guns in Barry Farm. Um, now. Bury Farm was attacked. Well, obviously, the 16th Division couldn't take it because you know, they, we have um, notes of, of some people, some small parties who managed to circumvent it, but really they couldn't do anything. They were either taken prisoner or killed. Uh, Bury Farm was attacked again on the 20th of August and held out. And Bury Farm was attacked on the 26th of August and held out. And it wasn't taken until the 20th of September by South Africans managed to take it. So you imagine the number of men were killed there. And if you move over to the to the uh, Ulster Division side, um, on, just on the on the boundary, we have uh, Gallipoli Farm, um, which I've, I've had the honour of visiting, and uh, it's just in front of a, a feature known as Hill Thirty Five, which goes thirty five meters above sea level. But just in front of Gallipoli Farm w- was uh, a construction of of. Um, concertinated belts of barbed wire um, over 10 metres thick and it hadn't been destroyed by the shrapnel shells so the Royal Irish Fusiliers were trying to get up towards Gallipoli Farm, they were getting mown down any gaps that were in the wire uh, men were being channeled there, the Germans were just wiping them out with with uh, 
machine gun firing. It's no surprise again that the highest fatalities in the Ulster division were in the ninth Royal Irish Fusiliers. Um, there's some interesting uh, accounts. Um, there's, a, there's a place to the left of, of um, Gallipoli Farm on the, on the battlefront, Somme Farm, and the 13th Royal Irish Rifles actually captured it, and then the Germans counterattacked and recaptured it, and then for a period of about 15 hours, nobody had it. It was it was left empty. Nobody nobody had it at all. Everybody, both sides thought the other side had it, but, but nobody had it at all. So uh, yeah, it's, it was an interesting one. But certainly the the uh, the, the German defence system worked exceptionally well, and blockhouses were were and pillboxes for a generic term were, were the key to that. I wonder whether you could walk us through the attack on the 16th uh, and sort of give us an idea of where, what sort of um, sources you use to, re- um, to reconstruct this narrative. And how long did the attack last and when was it finally decided that they would pull the divisions out? Uh, OK, um, well, to tell the story of the, the Irish divisions, uh, I utilise personal accounts, um, letters to families, uh, battalion, brigade, uh, division, corps, war diaries, officer service records were were very interesting. Um, where officers have been taken prisoners, and there weren't many of them. Um, but following repatriation, they have to give an account to the army board as to how or, uh, how they were captured. Um, uh, and some of these are remarkably detailed uh, and give you know map references, etc., within them. Um, also, regimental histories and books relating to the, the thirds, thirty offensive. So, analysis of all those enables enabled me to construct a picture of the advance of the attacking battalions from the right of the sixteenth, and they were up against uh, the Ape Ruler uh, Railway, uh, no longer exists, but it sort of leads up to the uh, Passchendaele Museum, just in that sort of area. Uh, the far side of the railway from them were the Eighth uh, Eighth Division. Um, on the left-hand side, then fighting alongside them with 36th Ulster Division, and they were up near Saint-Julien. The uh, village of Saint-Julien was being their boundary with the 48th South Midland Division. Uh, so 0 hour, uh, 4.45 a.m., the attack commenced. Uh, of the 24 attacking battalions across the two divisions, uh, only two were over half strength. Right, So we have, for any attack, Active service strength, we're looking roughly around a 1,000 officers and men. Because the 16th and 36th Divisions had been holding the front line in the mire for two weeks uh, in torrential rain and under continuous German shell fire, they had been systematically degraded through sickness and through killed and wounded. So um, as I mentioned, as many accounts as they, as they went forward, um, the mud was waist deep. Initial progress was made. They... they uh, until you know they fell into the, the, the German trap, they took the, the front line, then they came up against the bunkers. They were held up by the bunkers, creeping barrage had moved ahead, and then the German uh, angry the, the um, counter attack divisions uh, came down and, and pushed them back to the start line, with the exception of uh, a 400 yard piece of ground to the very left of the Ulster division frontage, where the 11th and the Skillings managed to take. Um, that, that small piece of ground, length and the skillings and the 14th Royal Irish Rifles managed to take and, and hold a, a small piece of ground. But that was the only ground that was made by either division uh, on that day. Um, as they went forward, you know, troops were pinned down. They were unable to move. Uh, my research would indicate um, that it began to fall apart for the Irish divisions about just over an hour after they had advanced. So around about six o'clock 
in the morning. It was also 4.45, 6 o'clock in the morning. And funnily enough, and where these things tend to go wrong is the boundary between two divisions. Because no matter your fellow countrymen, no matter how much you train together, you still have sort of different ethos and different ways of doing things. Um, And in this case, the attack began to break down on the boundary and it was uh, on Hill 35 with the 9th Royal Irish Fusiliers. They, as I mentioned, were faced by an impenetrable impenetrable, um, system of barbed wire and were being... uh, fired on by machine guns from Gallipoli Farm, but also enfiladed by machine gun fire um, from from other fortified farms in the area. Uh, They started to fall back, uh, and there's there's no doubt in this, they started to fall back around 6 a.m., and the 13th Royal Irish Rifles to their left were similarly being pinned down and started to retire also. This left, on the 16th Irish Division side of the line, the 7th Royal and Skilling Fusiliers, this left them... In an untenable position because you know they they have been infiltrated then from as well as you know the the, the places they were attacking they've been infiltrated by the places that the the uh, Royal Irish Fusiliers were attacking so they had to fall back as well and that had a concertina effect right across the the entire line uh, and with the the initiation of or the the arrival of the um, the counterattack German counterattack divisions that they were pushed back uh, and back to the start point. Apart from that one small pocket, which which um, which was able to be held, and what were the casualties of both units, both divisions, and what impact did they have on Ireland as a whole? Well, the casualties, and again, what I mentioned there about the the uh, the thirty uh, or sorry, the the fifty fifth and and the fifteenth divisions, and the the casualties that they had were they were remarkably similar. It's exactly the same situation with the Irish divisions. Fatalities. I've done my own research into into fatalities. Uh, the Irish divisions had 1,246 officers and men killed uh, on that day, uh, on, on the day. And, and the Battle really, Battle of Langemark is, is, is uh, cited as being from the 16th to the 18th of August. For, for the Irish divisions, it was really over in mid-morning on the 16th. They, they really had not much more to do after that. But there are 1,246 officers and men killed. And again, there's... Uh, I think it's 626 and 624. There's there's a very small difference between the, the two divisions as to the number of fatalities. Uh, count us more wounded. Uh, and a remarkable statistic that I found, and I, I can find this in no other battle that I have looked at across the, the Western Front, 80% of them, 80% of those 1,246 who were killed of no known grave, so that's four out of every five men have no known grave. They're, the vast majority are, are commemorated on the Tynecock Memorial. Uh, it's testament to the state of the battlefield where uh, those wounded, the stretcher bears weren't able to get to, and those killed just vanished without trace into the mud. Uh, in the immediate aftermath of the battle, because of a uh, number of casualties and, and due to the lack of reinforcements, uh, in the 16th Division, 7th uh, and 8th, Royal and Skilling Fusiliers were amalgamated. That was six days after the battle. They were amalgamated to become the 7th, 8th Inniskillings. And in the Ulster Division, uh, it was a similar scenario. The 8th and 9th Royal Irish Rifles were amalgamated uh, to become the 8th, 9th Royal Irish Rifles. And following the battle, uh, the, both Irish divisions were, were transferred from uh, 5th Army to 3rd Army. Uh, and the interesting, th- interesting thing I find about 
uh, about this. And it's, it's often been, I've heard this mentioned, particularly in Ireland, where people will say, ah, the, the Irish divisions were sacrificed on, on the front. And I've looked at that, and I've looked at that in the book. 15th division that I, I mentioned to you, uh, 15th Scottish division, who went into action on the 31st of July at the Battle of Pilgrim Ridge and three and a half thousand casualties. They had two weeks uh recuperating to the rear, they were back in the line on the 18th of August. They relieved the 16th Division again and had another 4,000 casualties by the end of the month. So that, that sort of puts that lie to bed. The, the, uh, you know, the, the uh, Irish Divisions were transferred because of operational necessity uh, and went to 3rd Army and recuperated and then took part in, both both divisions took part in, in the Battle of, of uh, Cambrai. Uh, the reinforcements that came uh Recruitment in Ireland basically had, because of political considerations, had had fallen away really to very, very little. So any reinforcements that came were, were conscripts, mostly English and, and Welsh conscripts. And that had actually been happening. Uh, I discovered evidence of that uh, prior to the battle where, um, you know, Army Service Corps, parties from Army Service Corps, uh, some from Sherwood Foresters, uh, some from the Somerset Light Infantry, parties of men were being, were being transferred to both divisions uh, at that time. Um but as I mentioned, uh, no no uh, reinforcements were coming from Ireland, and it was it was a uh, um, it was vehemently opposed politically, and it it, it never happened. Uh, it, it never happened in Ireland. Um, but as I say, by November, both divisions were up to strength, and, and uh, both fought well at, at the Battle of Cambrai. So so Herbert Goff uh, makes some controversial comments about the Irish division's performance during the battle. Um, that, and you draw uh, your you sort of I'll start that question again. General Sir Herbert Goff makes some controversial comments about the Irish division's performance during the battle or after the battle, rather. You mention these in your book. Um, what were they, and what were the broader implications of them, and what do they tell us about the Fifth uh, Army's command? Yes, this is uh, very controversial, particularly in Ireland. Um, <clears throat> Goff's comments are are actually quoted uh, in a number of occasions, but I, I have got them from the diaries of Field Marshal Haig, who, who had visited um, uh, General Goff on the afternoon of uh, the, the 17th. And I'll read it verbatim what he, what he noted in his diary. He said, he, Goff, was not pleased with the actions of the Irish divisions of the 19th Corps, uh, 36th and 16th. They seemed to have gone forward, but failed to keep what they had won. These two divisions were in the Messines battle and had an easy victory. The men are Irish and did not like the shelling. So Goff said, well, that's very interesting. <laughs> All the more interesting, uh, Hubert Goff, um, his maternal grandparents were from Tipperary and he spent most of his time growing up there. So that's a very interesting comment for him to make. Uh, they caused great anger and continue to cause great anger in Ireland. Um, and I addressed this by looking at the at the uh, the broader picture of the battle and the situation within Fifth Army. But after that, note in his diary, he notes that the 36th and 16th, he said, had quite a trying time before the battle. So he knew that they had been in the line. So he's, he's aware of that. And he comments that uh, only the 11th Division had made any significant gains on that day. So, you know, it's not it's not that the two Irish divisions let the, let the whole side down. Nobody really got forward apart from apart from one division. And interestingly... My, my research indicates that, that Hubert Goff was generally very well regarded by officers and men. Uh, as a junior officer, he made a point, um, probably what he would call sort of an after-action report. He would go around and ask people what they thought and how things could be improved. And that, that was, people took a lot of heart out of that. 
But as he rose through the ranks, opportunities to do that obviously became less and less, and he became sort of more remote from the man on the ground. And obviously a, a, a commander builds a staff around him, and, and Gough was, was no exception. One of His chief of staff was a gentleman called Major General Neil Malcolm, uh, and Gough had known him from, from childhood. He was fiercely protective of Gough, and he ruled Fifth Army with an iron rod, and he ruled it by fear. Uh, he was a gateway to General Gough, so nobody is going to go... Uh, no subordinates are, are going to go to Malcolm with issues and, and criticisms because he, he um, threatened them with dismissal and uh, put put the the uh, situation back back on them and said it was it was their fault that the that things had not gone well and he had no time for those who did not uh, display supreme confidence and that's of interest because there's in Goff's army we have four core uh, commanders Maxi Jacobs uh, the Earl of Cavan. And General Sir Herbert Watts. Now, General Sir Herbert Watts is the commander of 19 Corps. He is actually retired in 1914, so he's dug out. Uh, and by 1917, he's he's because done well. He's become a, a Corps commander, but he's not regarded in the same light as the other three Corps commanders. He's regarded as as uh, someone who who hasn't the same confidence. So, have an example. There was after the initial failure on the sixteenth. There was an order from uh, Fifth Army to resume the attack on the evening of the of the sixteenth. Well, basically, it was never going to happen because they had enough men. They started off with half the number of men they should had, and, and there's a lot less, so they, they were never going to be able to do that. So both Hickey, uh, uh, Major General Hickey of the sixteenth division, and, and Major General Nugent of thirty sixth uh, division went to Watts and said, "I'm sorry, we can't, we can't do that." So you can imagine the trepidation. With which, with which Watts approached General Malcolm to say, uh, "I'm sorry, we can't do it." So maybe that's the key to the to the uh, you know Goff's words may have been influenced by something that that Malcolm said. But really, fortunately, in my research, I came across another member of staff of the Fifth Army, uh, a gentleman called Lieutenant Colonel Edward Beddington, and he was an old contemporary of, of General Goff, a cavalry of cavalry officer again from the 16th Lancers. He had been with Goff in 1915. From 1915, 1916, he was transferred to the 8th Division, uh, to their staff, and he had an opportunity to observe 5th Army from the outside, and that's that's crucial. He returned on promotion uh, in December 1917, so after the Battle of the Third Deep Offence is over, and he confronted Goff and Malcolm and said, you've done you've done all these men at disservice. Um, and result, as a result of that, uh, and through Hague's intervention, uh, Major General Malcolm was transferred more or less overnight. Um, so that's quite interesting. But it wasn't just Irish. The Australians and the Canadians refused to fight uh, or refused to be attached to the Fifth Army uh, because they had been badly used under Goff's command at the Somme and at Arras at Bullecourt, particularly. But the Fifth Army was not a happy place to be in 1917. Um, and I think that, you know, Goff's in charge. He, he's the man to blame, but the blame attached to the Fifth Army uh, and the way it was run. Right. Well, we, we're broadcasting in the autumn of 2023. We're coming up to Christmas. So where can people get your book? Obviously, it makes an ideal present for friends and family, and it's ideal for office and home use. So where can they get it from? Well, um, to be totally selfish, they can get it from me because I can. <laughs> I have I have copies, and I'm sure my, my contact details will be 
uh, available and uh, I'll sign a copy for anybody that, that wishes one. Uh, it'll be available from Helium Books. Uh, Helium uh, published my last book and I've published this book and I've done exceptionally well. For any for any potential authors out there, uh, I find it really uh, very uh, easy, shall we say, to, to deal with, with Helium. Um, and obviously on Amazon, um, online on, on Amazon, you should be able to, to get it. Michael, thank you very much for your time. Not at all, Tom. Enjoyed it. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>